This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Um, thanks, I'm Eric Kaufman, and um, I'd like to uh, welcome you to the second plenary session. Uh, our first speaker today is uh, Professor Sheila Croucher, uh, Professor of American Studies and Political Science at Miami University of Ohio in the U.S. Um, among her recent books is The Other Side of the Fence, American Migrants in Mexico, published in 2009, uh, Globalization and Belonging, the Politics of Identity in a Changing World, 2003, uh, and uh, a bit further back, Imagining Miami Ethnic Politics in a Postmodern World, 1997. Her current work focuses on the implications of globalization for the form and content of American nationhood. And in 2003, Croucher was awarded the College of Arts and Science Distinguished Educator Award, and in 1998, the Associated Student Government Outstanding Teacher Award. Uh, Sheila, you have the floor. Okay, a very special thank you to Ellie and Joseph for organizing this incredibly well-organized conference. This is a new direction, new project for me in some ways, so it's a, a great opportunity and a great honor to be able to exchange these ideas with such a distinguished crowd of thinkers on the topic of ethnicity and nationalism and belonging. So for the last month, I've been trying to follow best I can the events in the Crimea, and I'm reminded of a time over 20 years ago when I was just finishing graduate school, starting my first job in a political science department. And it seemed at that time that the discipline of political science had suddenly just discovered the topic of ethnicity and nationalism. And, and I say that with the exception of some of the minds in this room who were well ahead of that curve. But overall, it was a bit of a discovery. It was an important time for political science to make that discovery because in 1993, the Soviet Union had just collapsed, and, it, and, and there, and in many other places, it was becoming very apparent that this was a topic that, had, that was pervasive and potent and had indeed been overlooked by some of the important thinkers in political science. So I was asked to develop a new course on ethno-nationalism and had just a couple of weeks to do it. And I remember scouring journals for readings and so forth, and I found an article in uh, Political Science Quarterly in 1993 by Seymour Martin Lipset, where he was saying, hey, political scientists, we should pay attention to ethnicity and nationalism. This is a, a global phenomenon. And then the article began to go through different hotspots in the world uh, that, that would make justify this as an important topic. So in Africa, he pointed to the Sudan. Uh, in Western Europe, he talked about in Spain, the Basques and Catalans. He talked about the growing tension between immigrants in Western Europe, particularly immigrants from Muslim countries. In the U.S., he pointed to the growing xenophobia toward Latino immigrants. And in the former Soviet space, he talked about tension between Russia and the Ukraine over Crimea. So when I look at that article written in 1993, and I look at the world today, I'm stunned by the similarities in, in what's being described. But it's also important to ask, and I think people are doing that here, to ask in what ways has the scholarship on this topic kept up uh, or, or perhaps been stuck in some way similar to what's going on in the world. So 
I'm not going to talk about any of those areas of the world or, or ethno-national conflicts. I'm going to talk about Barack Obama, but I want to be very clear first why I'm talking about Barack Obama. So I'm going to start with some guiding assumptions that I, oops, I think I am, uh, that I think will be things that all of us can probably for the most part agree on. Nationhood as a central source and site of belonging has persisted in a way and with a potency that defies many predictions of its demise. The nations and nationalisms that do persist are not static in form or content, and globalization is a primary contingency underlying their fluidity. So again, there's, I don't think anything particularly controversial or, or frankly even new about those claims. But, but going back to that point about how has the scholarship on this topic advanced over the last 20 years, I, I will start with some self-criticism. In 2003, I wrote a review essay on the topic of globalization and nationhood entitled Perpetual Imagining. And essentially the argument was that because nationhood conceptually and in practice is very malleable, then we can expect that nations will be perpetually imagined, although that those imaginings will change in both form and content. So it was, I think, an interesting enough idea, but nothing I ever did anything further with other than to, to make that claim. So last year, in 2013, I came across an article by Ulrich Beck, 2013, titled Cosmopolitanized Nations, Reimagining Collectivity in World Risk Society. Beck cited that perpetual imagining essay and reiterated that claim, saying it's not enough to recognize the nation as a historically constructed category, but we must explore how exactly this malleability evolves in a global context. So today's focus on Obama is my initial attempt to take seriously my call and Ulrich Beck's call to look more closely at the configurations of belonging in the context of globalization. I want to say a little bit more about Beck's argument because it's informed what it is I'm trying to do. So in this 2013 article, he's building on this notion of world risk society to argue that globalization and its attendant risks are prompting a reimagining of collectivities. Nations, Beck hypothesizes, are being cosmopolitanized. Now, he's careful to clarify that he's not talking about the Martha Nussbaum normative version of cosmopolitanism. He's talking about that, that normative version that is about foregrounding our common humanity. But that he's talking about a banal, involuntary transformation of identifications that simply unfolds. Cosmopolitanization, his, his conceptualization, does not supplant nations, but reconfigures them through a thickening of solidarities with distant others and a thickening of solidarities that are not territorially caged within the nation state. So this builds on Beck's earlier proposition that if risk creates society, world risks create world society. In that article, he sketches a framework for how we can begin to examine this cosmopolitanization, in part by spelling out the global conditions that propel it, 
world market imperative, migration, world religious interpenetration. There's some reference in Beck's article to how the media play a role in configuring forms of belonging, and I attended a really interesting panel already here where some people were looking at that as well. But essentially, Beck's article is another call for more empirical analysis of what's happening now in terms of configuring belonging in a global context. So my hope is that with this focus on the rhetoric of the nation shaper-in-chief in the United States, that I can contribute in some ways to what configure, configuring belonging is looking like in a global context. Now, in addition to contributing, hopefully, to the descriptive discussion, what is happening, I also want to engage the prescriptive discussion or the, the more normative debate about what should be happening. This is obviously a, an expansive debate and a long-standing one that typically juxtaposes cosmopolitanism, and, and now I do mean the Martha Nussbaum variant, cosmopolitan attachments with national, local, ethnic, patriotic, love of country, love of kin attachments. What's interesting to me about this normative prescriptive debate is that Martha Nussbaum has recently seemed to change her mind in terms of the, her, her prescriptions for belonging. And having been the, the thinker perhaps most closely associated with advocating cosmopolitanism, Martha Nussbaum has recently been defending patriotism, provided it's a globally sensitive or purified form of patriotism. So this is Martha Nussbaum in 1996, and, and probably the Martha Nussbaum position that most people are familiar with. She's critical of, of patriotism as morally dangerous and subversive, and she's advocating the old ideal of cosmopolitanism or having allegiance to the worldwide community of human beings. This is Martha Nussbaum in a 2008 essay where she's arguing that because nations are asking people to sacrifice, they need to, give, they need to appeal to something that's going to motivate people to make those kind of sacrifices. And so they, they're going to need to appeal to symbols, rhetoric, emotional memory, and history. Now, Nussbaum doesn't, in this 2008 article, explain the change of position. And, it, and this changing position, I, I think, gets more fully developed in a very recent book on political emotions, which I'm going to admit to only having begun to read. So if anybody else has read it, and I'm misunderstanding this, I will be happy to be corrected. But what she does go on to say in the in this same 2008 article, when she's trying to explain why patriotism, purified, globally sensitive patriotism may be important, she says people are sometimes moved by love of just institutions, but really the human mind is quirky and particularistic, more able to conceive of strong attachment if you have memory, symbols, narrative, and poetry. Okay, so Nussbaum does caution that leaders who stir these emotions must do so in a purified and globally sensitive way which means patriotism cannot be based on ethno-linguistic or religious homogeneity. It must foster compassion. It can usefully use anger if that anger is directed at injustice. It should draw upon hope. All citizens must be treated as fully equal, constitutions revered, and at no point should leaders rely on disgust or shame. She focuses on 
leaders who she thinks exemplify globally sensitive patriotism, and she does this in much more detail in this, this recent book. But those, in, those examples include Abraham Lincoln and Mahatma Gandhi. And what's important here is that when she talks about the purified patriotism of people like Abraham Lincoln or Mahatma Gandhi, she goes on to say that these, these leaders, these pure patriots, also have almost naturally a global perspective. And that allows her to conclude, and I quote, purified patriotism melds naturally into a striving for global justice and inclusive human love. Okay. So here are the questions I'm interested in investigating. To, to Beck's point, by looking at Obama's political rhetoric, to what extent is there evidence of cosmopolitan reconfiguration? And where there is patriotism, is it of the sort, according to Martha Nussbaum, that would meld naturally into cosmopolitanism? Or what Roger Smith has called telling story, stories of peoplehood. When Obama tells stories of peoplehood, are they the kind of stories that could be um, meld naturally into cosmopolitanism? Obama, I think, presents a particularly interesting and useful case for this exploration because of the claims making, both on his, on his own part and also by many other people, the pronouncements about his global belonging and his global background, and even specifically his cosmopolitanism. One of the most widely discussed claims was one that Obama himself made in 2008 when he made a speech in Berlin and he declared himself to be a citizen of the world. Now, as you might imagine, that caused all kinds of problems among some groups in the United States, but nevertheless, that was his statement. I come, I come to you tonight to speak to you as a citizen of the world. He also had alluded to his cosmopolitan sensibilities in his autobiographies. In the 2004 Dreams of My Father, Obama says, how do I function as somebody who is American and takes pride and understands the enormous blessings that come with being an American, but is also able to recognize that I am part of something larger than a nation state. At another point on the campaign trail, Obama said that in addition to giving the annual State of the Union address, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, he would also deliver to the American people an annual State of the World address in order to expand the way Americans understood themselves and, and their situatedness in the world. So there were also a number of observers. Actually, I'm going to give you just a small, small sample and quickly of people who were also making that kind of claim about what they expected from Obama or what he would promise. Again, I'm going to go through these quickly. We can look at them again if anyone wants to. They were, there were many. These are just a few of them. So here we see uh, Obama. Americans have a rare opportunity. This is a person whose vision and leadership are not, is not just sought by Americans, but by the world. So this could be America's first world president. It's going to make global sense to elect somebody like Obama. This from Kenyon, a Kenyan professor and essayist, Obama, he represents a mosaic of cultures and experiences. He's the first political leader who fits snugly in the skin of globalization. He's one of those rare historical figures that's, that is embodying a period and offering promise and inspiring hope. Uh, Barack Obama is really the first global leader, and here specifically he's described as cosmopolitan. So, so after Obama gave, he was already elected president and, and delivered his first inaugural address, he's being described as cosmopolitan, and, and, and which is something that is distinct from the internationalism of preceding U.S. presidents, and we can talk about that distinction 
later. Uh, then a historian in the United States, Barack Obama, is our first global president, so he comes of age after the Cold War. He has a multicultural heritage, and he's going to bring this diversity and this positioning to the world. And then last but not least, when Obama was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize very early in his presidency, the committee explained that he was deserving of the prize because he was, he was speaking to values and going to lead on the basis of values and attitudes that aren't just American, but the world's values and attitudes. And that, that it was time for, for all of us to follow in his example, that we share, we must have global responses to global challenges. We all share responsibility in that regard. Okay, so I think it's fair to say there was reason to believe that Barack Obama would bring something different in terms of configuring belonging and telling stories of peoplehood. So my plan was to look and see to what extent, once in office, uh, how, did, how did Obama negotiate the tug and pull of the national and the global as he, he contributed to shaping belonging. So I looked at his two inaugural addresses and five State of the Union addresses, to 2010 through 2014. He, he's given two inaugural addresses, one in 2009, one in 2013. There was a noticeable shift in the inaugural address from the first to the second. It was that first inaugural address, remember, where he was described as being cosmopolitan. And it was by the second inaugural in 2013 where he was explicitly invoking American exceptionalism, uh, having done so also in terms of making the case for military action in Syria. So I'm going to give you an example from 2009 and an example from 2013. There's a point in both, the inaugurals are actually relatively short compared to the State of the Unions, but there's a point in both of those speeches where he turns his attention from more purely domestic issues to, to reach out to the world. And, and here is the example from 2009. So you can read. <laughs> so basically, you know, we seek a new way forward, mutual respect, uh, mutual interest we share with the Muslim world. To poor nations, we're going to work alongside you. Farms are going to flourish. Clean water is going to flow. We enjoy rel uh, relative plenty, so we're, we can't be indifferent. We can't consume the world's resources. The world's changed. We've got to change with it. So this is an example of, of how he was positioning the United States' situatedness in a relationship with the rest of the world, which I think it, were, it was examples like these that led people to say, here we have a leader who is going to really embrace a kind of cosmopolitanism. This is that same point in the inaugural speech in 2013 when Obama turns his attention to the world. We will defend our people. This, by the way, now is the United States. We will defend our people and uphold our values through strength of arms and rule of law. We will show courage and, and also he's still, we're going to engage because engagement is uh, a way to lift suspicion and fear. America will remain the anchor of strong alliances in every corner of the globe. We'll renew institutions, da 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 da. No one has a greater stake in a peaceful world than its most powerful nation. So. I think that both of these are, are uh, I think, good examples of what happened in that time period. All right, so because those inaugural addresses are relatively short, I also did just a, a kind of word counting comparison and just looked at words that show up in these addresses that I thought could be indicative of how Obama was approaching the issue of belonging. And I'm not going to hang a whole bunch on this methodology, so we can say that later, but I still thought it was interesting. He says the word citizen once, then he says it eight times. He doesn't say anything about America being exceptional, but then he says it once. Uh, humanity gets a, a short showing in the first time and then disappears. 
We the people once and then five times. The world had seven showings and then dropped to three. All right, again, I'm not going to offer you any chi-square multiple regression, anything on the basis of those word counts, but I thought it was interesting. So then the other thing I did was look at the State of the Union addresses. And again, there were five of them. So what I did was I marked places in each of those speeches where Obama made reference beyond the borders of the United States. So when he mentioned another country, when he mentioned the world, when he mentioned the earth, when he mentioned globe, anything like that. If he made multiple references but was still just making the same point. So if there was a paragraph about Afghanistan and he said Afghanistan four times, I still just counted that as one reference to, to U.S. troops in Afghanistan. So I, I, after I identified these references, then I categorized them by topic area and also by perspective. I'm going to go ahead and show you this, but I'm going to probably be talking about it for a little while. So, uh, the perspective issue is much more important than the topic area. Not surprisingly, the most common topic area, so when Obama makes a reference beyond the borders of the United States, it is most often in relation to the global economy. So that topic area wasn't particularly important. Perspective, I think, is more significant. And so this is what I did. If, so all of these are references beyond the U.S. borders. If the reference was had a more nationalist perspective, and by that I mean if the interests at stake were specifically and exclusively those of the American nation, the well-being and advancement of the American nation, I coded it nationalist. These references were generally competitive in tone. The U.S. was, the, the relationship with other countries was portrayed as a contest that the U.S. either was clearly winning or if we weren't, we should be working hard to again be winning. So that, those were the ones I coded nationalist. Others I coded globalist, and this was a category that was, this was about engagement with other countries, but it was sometimes about relationships or in the service of other countries. The viewpoint was more worldwide. The interests that were being portrayed were not exclusively America's interests. They often encompassed more universal concerns, security, prosperity, freedom, human dignity. What was interesting about this, these globalist references is there was a lot of variation within that category. So there were cases where Obama would make reference to, to, to the world and his perspective would be global, but not cosmopolitan. So I further divided this category into three subcategories. One was exceptional or exceptionalist. This is a familiar theme in, in American political rhetoric and, and nationalism. In this case, the, the interests were specifically the United States, or the interests were the United States as politically, economically, and morally superior, special, unique. And you already saw some of that in the, in the other things. And also what would happen in these is U.S. values were often assumed or stated to be universal values, synonymous with the world's values. And, it, and something was going on in these that, that Michael Billig has described as the syntax of hegemony. By cosmopolitan, the ones I coded as cosmopolitan, I was using Martha Nussbaum's definition of what that means. Where, where the, the identification was with a world of human beings and the, the moral allegiance was rooted in common humanity. Neither meant, it was the, the reference wasn't clearly fitting in either category, but I can say more about that in a second. So now I'm just going to give you some examples. There, there were several of them, many of them, uh, something 68 of them, but I'm just going to give you a few so you could see what I was doing, and some people may end up wanting to quibble with this. But So here, the first three are examples that I coded nationalist. 
So Obama's saying in, in uh, the 2010 State of the Union, China's not waiting, Germany's not waiting, they're not standing still, they're not playing for second place, I don't accept second place for the United States of America. Definitely not cosmopolitan, um, so, or, or globalist even, so this is, these are just the nationalist categories. In 2011, we know what it takes to compete. We have, this was the win the future State of the Union. Over and over and over, he repeated that. We, we, in the United States, have to win the future. We have to out-innovate, out-educate, out-build. We have to make America the best place on earth to do business. That's how we'll win the future. And then again, this one also from 2010, I'm going to uh, create a trade enforcement union. Our workers are the most productive on earth. If the playing field is level, I promise you, America will always win. All right, these were category, the, the category I, I labeled globalist. And this was an example of globalist, but about the exceptionalism of the United States. And it's long, and you get the points. So I'm just going to highlight the highlights. So here you get this explicit, the enduring power of our moral example. America remains the one indispensable nation in the world in, in world affairs. And as long as I'm president, I intend to keep it that way. So the, the, the perspective is more global, but it's because America, we have a certain moral example to set for the rest of the world. We are the one indispensable nation. Uh, you see, America must remain a beacon, and that's a common thing. We are a beacon. America is a beacon to the world. And then when Obama travels to other countries, people wave the American flag and they say, we want our country to be like your country. You're the beacon for people who want freedom and, and justice. Uh, and then he says, my fellow Americans, 2014, so this is the very recent one in, in late January, my fellow Americans, no other country in the world does what we do. On every issue, the world turns to us, not simply because of the size of our economy or military might, but because of the ideals that we stand for and the burdens that we bear to advance them. All right, now, out of the 68 references that I coded in the State of the Union, there were only three that I felt like could, could legitimately be classified as cosmopolitan, and I'm going to show you all three of them, but pretty quickly. And you may, again, disagree with whether this even qualifies, but here Obama is saying he's talking about common security and common prosperity of all people. He's talking about the different thing, you know, working in the G20, which has changed in number a zillion times since this statement, um, helping other countries feed themselves, continuing the fight against AIDS, new initiatives at home, abroad, whatever. So this is, a, this is about engagement. The United States isn't being held out as a beacon or a moral example or the best. It's just that we're, we're all engaged. We have to think about prosperity for everybody. Uh, this one in 2010, we take these actions because our destiny is connected to those beyond our shores. So we are all in this together, and it's important to take to be in, invested in children going to school and, and women's rights and uh, corruption and standing on the side of freedom and human dignity. And then here, uh, we these things we do, our progress in impoverished worlds, the world, it enriches us all. Our, our world enriches us all. The world's children. So he's talking about things that are important for the world. Us, us, we, in these cases, means the world, not just the United States. All right, this is an example, and I, I think I only gave two of these. This was an example, you can see how I wasn't really sure what to call this. It's not, he's not talking about the U.S. as a beacon, uh, but he's also not really talking about the world, a common humanity, or shared interests. He's these, I think, and I was going to say this later, but I'll just say it now. I think these things I was calling neither would probably be most appropriately called internationalist, where he's talking about engagement, but the nation state is still the, the foremost kind of collectivity and form of belonging. Okay, same thing. And again, if anybody wants to see these again, we can come back to them. 
So I'm going to go back to this table right here. On the basis of this, you can see that in all but one year, Obama's references beyond the borders of the United States are as or more likely to adopt a nationalist perspective than a global one, and that this is already just the ones that, that go outside of the United States, not even the purely domestic conversation. The interests at stake are specifically and exclusively those of the American nation, and the tone tends to be more competitive. The references that could legitimately be labeled cosmopolitan were actually relatively few, and two of the three were uttered in the very first State of the Union address in 2010. And I already mentioned that I think this neither category should probably have been called internationalist. So a couple of quick caveats before I conclude with what I think the point is. I know it's a small data set. I know it's not a methodology that's going to satisfy anybody who's interested in quantitative analysis. But I think it's useful for the purposes at hand, or I, I hope so. I'm also aware that there are a number of idiosyncrasies to this case. And so I, I don't, it, I, this is about something more than Obama. So let me just say, it's, it's very clear that what Obama was able to do, he had very limited room for maneuver, let's put it that way. When you, when you think about who he was as an individual, what he was up against in terms of the rancor of partisan politics in the United States right now and opposition from groups like the Tea Party, we spent forever arguing about whether or not the man was even born in the United States. An embarrassingly high number of Americans still say Obama's Muslim. And if he's not Muslim, he's a socialist. So we've spent a lot of time leaving him very, making it, making the stakes particularly high for someone like Obama to prove his American nationalism. And I think that's an important thing. And, and also understanding what's been going on in terms of US domestic politics, that's obviously an important thing. But I also think there are some broader implications or broader conclusions. And, and I would say those are these. In terms of Beck's question, there's limited evidence that I can see in Obama's rhetoric of cosmopolitanization. It's clear that Obama has a keen awareness of globalization and a keen awareness of world risks. But those may be necessary conditions or motivating conditions, but they're clearly not sufficient conditions for a kind of thickening of solidarity to, to automatically occur, at least on the part of the, the rhetoric of the nation shaper in chief. I think in some ways what that means, or, or the way to explain that, is that, and, and many people have said this, states continue to be much more potent, prominent actors in the global system than many people anticipated. And, and in fact, so states are challenged, there's no question, but they've been, they've been more intractable and more adaptable, I think, than many people anticipated. And that, by the way, is one of the major criticisms of Beck's work, that he has overstated the demise of the state as he plays out world risk society. So what that means for belonging is a couple of things. If states continue to be significant central actors, they continue to need, in a potterized words, ideological alibis. And one of the key ideological alibis for the modern state has always been the nation. So states have a continuing, if not even intensified, interest in imagining communities that serve as their ideological alibis. And at the same time as they have an intensified need to do that, those same conditions of globalization make it harder to maintain some of the fictions of the imagined community that Benedict Anderson talked about. So for example, Anderson's emphasis on the need for at least a, a belief in deep, 
horizontal comradeship. It gets harder and harder to maintain a fiction of deep horizontal comradeship in an increasingly unequal, unequal society. So states continue to have, if not even maybe intensified, need for an ideological alibi that they find in a national community. Meanwhile, populations have a need to seek refuge, however increasingly ineffective it might be, in some kind of unit that at least promises to offer protection from the vagaries of globalization and neoliberalism. I know this conclusion is a little frustrating because basically it's just saying, oh, guess what? Nation states are challenged, but they're not dead. And it's frustrating because it's basically admitting we're sort of stuck somewhere, it seems to me, kind of stuck in some in-between period. And Wendy Brown, political theorist Wendy Brown, has, has referred to this as, as a global interregnum. She says it's a time after the era of modern state sovereignty, but before the articulation or instantiation of an alternate order. So it's frustrating, but I think it might be the conclusion that at least for now we're stuck with. On this second question about the, the more prescriptive normative issue, I didn't emphasize Obama's patriotism, but I think you probably saw it. I assure you, and I don't think this will come, come as any surprise, because this is what Obama's actually known for, Obama's patriotism absolutely meets the standards of what Martha Nussbaum described as purified or globally sensitive. Again, that's one of the things he's particularly well known for. So there's, there, there's nothing in Obama's patriotism that violated any of those things that rules Martha Nussbaum was laying out for purified, globally sensitive patriotism. But I think as you saw from, from these examples, I'm skeptical, much more so than she is, that that kind of even purified, globally sensitive patriotism is going to meld naturally into cosmopolitanism. So this is going to be the uh, conclusion that's going to sound really weird since I've been pretty much nothing but skeptical. I, I feel like there's reason for skepticism when it comes to actually existing cosmopolitanism. But I'm much more optimistic about the value and the feasibility of cosmopolitanism, in spite of this focus on the lack of it actually existing yet. I'm more optimistic about the value because I, I continue to believe that patriotism, particularly as, as it plays out in the United States, is problematic. And so for this, I'll go back to old Martha Nussbaum, pre-patriotic pre Martha Nussbaum, who said in 1996 about US patriotism, we say that respect should be accorded to humanity as such, but we really mean that Americans as such are worthy of special respect. And that, I think, is a story that Americans have told for far too long. And I think she's right about that. So in terms of the value of cosmopolitanism, I, I would continue to, to advocate it. Um, as to the question of, of feasibility, what's interesting here is that now when Martha Nussbaum is defending patriotism, and again, I haven't read the whole book, but I, I know it from the article and I know it from what I've read, she's invoking literature, symbols, songs, and poetry in her defense of the need for patriotism. This is exactly what she invoked in defense of cosmopolitanism and in response to her critics in 1996. Critics who said cosmopolitanism is too thin, too vacuous, too empty to motivate passion and love. And to that, to that critique, Martha Nussbaum said in her defense of cosmopolitanism, she said, it would be difficult to find a powerful work of art that is not at some level concerned with the claim of the common. 
It is poetry that depicts a world of human beings beyond the narrow one that we know. It is compelling art that is concerned with recognizing the common and the strange. So, in other words, the argument that humans are quirky and moved by emotions is not, in my opinion, in itself a compelling argument against the feasibility or advisability of working to thicken more global forms of belonging. The Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism is an interdisciplinary student-led research association founded by research students and academics in 1990 at the London School of Economics and Political Science. We seek to fulfill two broad objectives, to facilitate and maintain an interdisciplinary global network of researchers, academics and other scholars interested in ethnicity and nationalism, and to stimulate, produce and diffuse world-class research on ethnicity and nationalism. We do this through our global membership, our two leading journals, Nations and Nationalism and Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism, our newsletter, The Ruritanian, which provides key updates on information in the field, and through our programme of events. Our YouTube channel features videos from our annual conferences, seminar series, lectures and debates. You can find us online at lse.ac.uk forward slash ASIN, on Twitter at ASIN Events, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ASIN Events.